I really love the framing of the idea of, of experiments, which is like, you don't know what's going to work. So run experiments. Experiments are small, they're containable. Whether they work or whether they don't work, they're helpful because they give you data. And it's disentangling that, which is like, you know what? I've set up an experiment that if it doesn't work, it's not going to cripple me. And if it doesn't work, I can really stop and have the discipline to go. So what does that tell me? What do I learn from that? Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. This is Ben Morton, and a very warm welcome to episode 78 of the podcast. And in this episode, we are lucky enough to be joined by Michael Bungay-Stania, or MBS, as he is also known. Michael is the author of seven books, which between them have sold over a million copies worldwide. He's best known for The Coaching Habit, the best-selling coaching book of the century and already recognised as a classic. His new book, How to Begin, helps people be more ambitious for themselves and for the world. Michael was a Rhodes Scholar and plays the ukulele badly, which are his words, not mine, I must add. He's an Australian who now lives in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, I was able to explore some of the ideas from his latest book that really resonated with me and that I think will be incredibly useful for you too. We also spent a lot of time talking about his journey of stepping down as the CEO of the company he founded, Box of Crowns, and handing over the reins to a successor. If you are thinking of handing over your business in the future, or if you are a CEO who is about to come in and take over from a founder, then this episode is going to be absolutely invaluable. A quick one before we get into the episode. If you're getting value from the show, then it'd be awesome if you could do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts, click on the show's main page. And if you scroll all the way down through all 78 episodes, you will be able to see a little button you can click on where you can rate and review. It would be awesome if you could give the show a five-star rating and write a really short review for us. It really does help us keep the podcast alive and enable us to keep bringing you more and more episodes with amazing leaders and subject matter experts like Michael. That's it for now, though. Let's get back to this episode and please enjoy my conversation with Michael Bungay-Stania. Michael, welcome to the show. It's uh, awesome having you with us today. First of all, like, how are you? I'm great, Ben. You know, it's really nice to connect. You know, we were talking before you hit the record button that you're based in Berkhamsted in the UK. And I actually spent a year living and working in Berkhamsted when I was uh, 17, 18. Um, so I kind of know where you are in the world. Yeah, and isn't it strange how straight away you, you feel there's a sense of connection when you've got a, the smallest of commonality, you immediately right. feel feel more connected to someone, don't you? you no, know, I, I was actually in Berkhamsted maybe three or four years ago, seeing a guy called Colin Hunter. I don't know if you know Colin, but he's... I uh, do know Colin Hunter. Yeah, so he's based in and around there as well, doing leadership stuff and wandered back into the school where I'd worked as a teacher and they were like, who the hell are you? Get off our property. I'm like, oh, it's a little stricter. <laughs> it's a little harder because in my day, you could just wander through the school with no problem. So yeah, I know the high street, I'm sure some of the pubs have gone, but some of them will still be the same. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Michael, I really enjoyed reading your latest book, How to Begin, and there's so many questions from there that <laughs> I want to dive into with you. Yeah. But probably for, for context for everyone listening, can you give us like the two or three minute sort of overview of, of How to Begin? Sure. The emotional heart of the book is we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. The kind of tactical expression of that is how do I help people be ambitious for themselves and for the world? So how do I get them to access the the hard things? I mean, what is a hard thing? And so that takes you to the practical, tactical side of the book, which is how do you set a worthy goal, a goal that is thrilling and important and daunting? When I wrote the first draft of this book, it wasn't that at all. <laughs> but somehow, once I found that phrase, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things, it took me into an inquiry about, so how do, what are goals and how do they work? And do I like things like SMART goals? And I'm like, I have accepted SMART goals as a, a framework for 30 years. And now I think about it, I'm like, I'm thoroughly under underwhelmed by it. <laughs> so this is an idea that whereas SMART goals tend to try and tidy up your goal, a worthy goal is saying, is this the right goal for me to be working on? And that's what this book is about. Yeah. Well, I guess on, on that then, do you still think there's a place for for smart goals do they sort of work for the let's say slightly more oh, what's the right word here it's like more functional goals very much in the work setting and the worthy goals can be more personal i i think a worthy goal can be both work and not work so you know you have one or two worthy goals <laughs> you know they're, they're big they're substantial they're non-trivial in terms of what you're setting yourself and I think that for kind of more, let's call them day-to-day -day goals, yeah. the SMART framework can work. But the same basic challenge remains, particularly with SMART goals. First of all, nobody can quite remember what SMART stands for. Yeah, yeah. Everybody kind of thinks they know, but they're not totally sure. And I've seen a list of all the words that can, you know, the S can stand for on the M. And it's like three to five different words <laughs> that get used. So it's like, what is a SMART goal? Nobody, Nobody's quite sure. But the bigger issue is, if it's not the right goal, a smart goal means you're just polishing a turd. <laughs> you're like, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you know, you're tidying up and you're fine-tuning and you're making actionable and real or timely, whatever the words stand for, something that's not the thing you should be working on. And in the book, The Coaching Habit, the key question there is, what's the real challenge here for you? And it has as its yeah. insight that, we tend to accept the first thing that shows up and go, that's probably the thing we should be working on. And actually, the power is to stay curious a little bit longer and go, but what's the real challenge here for you? And if you're that sort of person who can help figure out what the real challenges are, you become valuable in your organization. And it's a similar stay curious a little bit longer about what your goal is by going, what, what, what is really thrilling and important and daunting for me? Don't be seduced into thinking the first articulation of your goal is the real and the final articulation of your goal. Yeah. So you know what, that has just resonated so much with me when you talked about smart goals and, and polishing a turd. It's so true, right? You can use all those parameters to, to tidy it up, but if the initial goal is still crap, you, you've still got crap at the end. Uh, it reminds me a bit of the kind of craze from some years ago of the ISO 9000 quality control thing. And you're like, you can have a high quality process that is the wrong process. <laughs> and you've got to, there's a fundamental question, which is like, what's the right thing to be doing here? What's the right thing to be focusing yeah. on here? What's the right thing to be solving for here? And that's the harder work. 
And if you can direct yourself and your team and those around you to be asking those questions, then you become this kind of powerful, influential, strategic leader that people want around them. Yeah, that absolutely resonates. And talking about kind of ISO 9000 or whatever it was back in the day, talking about something else that's become sort of popular, I think over the last 10 years, probably like purpose has got really popular in management circles, much like probably vision and mission did in the 80s and 90s. I'm, I'm curious, how do you distinguish, if at all, between a worthy goal and, and a purpose? Yeah. I mean, it, these words are always a bit slippery, right? Because, you know, vision, mission, I'm like, I've never quite figured out which one's which. And, and, and you know, are they the same? Are they kind of related, kissing cousins in some way? Or is, are they, how's, what's the hierarchy? So the way I tend to think about it is, it can be helpful if you've got a bigger purpose, you know, and some people are inclined to go, look, I've articulated and defined a purpose for me, or maybe it's for my the, my company or my organization, whatever it might be. Not everybody has a purpose, and sometimes purposes, you know, they're like, oh, I should have a purpose, so they come up with something that's vague and sounds okay, but it's not actually that motivating. Yeah, it's like that polished turd again. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. Now, I do have a purpose. So here's, here's how I articulate my purpose. I'd, I want to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. Now, I wrote that almost 20 years ago at a time when there wasn't a pandemic. So the whole I'm going to infect people yeah. with a virus <laughs> thing was uh, not quite as weird a metaphor to be trotting out. But, you know, that is just a very big, vague, unobtainable North Star by which I try and orient towards. I like it because, you know, a possibility virus and infecting people means that it's not me touching a billion people individually because I can't do that. But it's, it's putting stuff out in the world that spreads and finds a way of connecting and engaging with people. So it helps me with things like how much credit do I need? <laughs> you know, I'm like, the coaching habit is so sold a million copies there's a bunch of people who are learning the seven questions who have no idea who i am or that i wrote this book and i'm fine with that because it connects to a purpose i think a worthy goal is often your best guess at your most significant commitment to something that is your your broader purpose got you so the way it works for me is i every now and then stop and i go all right in fact a billion people with the possibility virus there's a lot of ways I can think about doing that. What's my best guess at something that is thrilling and important and daunting and might take me closer to that unobtainable purpose? And a worthy goal is you're kind of like, I think this is it. This is my best guess. So that's for me the relationship. And that's why I think you know one or maybe two worthy goals at a time is about as much as you can do because they're, they're big. It's not like my goal is to brush my teeth every night. It's like, no, my goal is to write a book or to launch a company or to, uh, I'll stop monologuing in a bit. But as I say this, I realize that I'm, I'm setting up an expectation in some people that a worthy goal has to be big, has to be kind of save the world, Messiah complex, you know, send rockets to Mars or, you know, defend a country versus invaders or something like that. And I'm like, you know, actually, one of the things that I think is true about a worthy goal idea is that it scales. It scales big, but it also scales small. So you can have a worthy yeah. goal that is is really quite intimate. It's like I want to be an extraordinary parent or step-parent or partner or son. I want to contribute to my team in a certain way. And you can be playing at different levels of scale. 
and still have a worthy goal that somehow connects to a purpose. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And I think they're all equally as worthy, yeah. right? Like, uh, and who's, who's, the, who's the judge? But... Yeah, I mean, the big thing is, it's like you're going to be committing time and effort and reputation and relationship equity. When you say yes to a worthy goal, you disrupt the status quo. And so whether you're, you're choosing to scale big or scale small doesn't really matter, but you just want to make sure it's the right goal because the pot will get stirred. Yeah, I love that. And in the chapter about identifying your, your worthy goal, I saw you made this distinction between work and non-work. And I, I found that really interesting because in, in my work, a lot of the time, if I'm talking about maybe values, people say, well, are we talking about work or out of work here, Ben? Or sometimes if I'm talking about goals, they go, well, are you talking about kind of in work or or out of work? And there's there's lots of examples where I get that. Do you mean in work or out of work, Ben? Like, What's your kind of take on that? Do you see a distinction? Is it important? Is it is it not important? Well, you know, in the end, we're talking about a single life. <laughs> so people weave work and not work together in different ways. So it's like it depends a little bit. You know, when, when people have a conversation with you around values and you go, do I have different values inside work or outside work? That feels odd to me. I'm like wouldn't you have a consistent set of values, meaning these are the principles by which I live my life in all contexts. But it's also true that when you go into an organization, an organization will go, well, these are our values. <laughs> this is how we think yeah. you behave around here. So there is a way that your values may be affected by the gravity of the organization's values, you know, kind of pulled and changed in some way. But it doesn't feel like they'd be radically different. You know, you're like... My value is to be generous at home, but like, you know, crush people at work. You know, like it feels like <laughs> yeah, when I go to work, I don't give a shit. Yeah, exactly. I was like, how does, uh, how does that work? I, I think the worthy goal thing, though, it can exist both in the work and the not work context. Now, it's just fair to say, look, that's an artificial, but perhaps useful distinction. You know, when I ask people, where would you find your worthy goal? We have a conversation about scale. We have a conversation about is it about work or not work and you know part of what i hope is i'm giving people permission to say look i don't have to have a worthy goal at work <laughs> i could go look i think of my two brothers and i go one of them has a commitment around goals for his work he's, he's, he's got a career he wants he has ambitions he wants to do things where he is one of them is much more around my my work is outside the way i earn money and his worthy goals are much more around his community and kind of like, how do I build this? It's like, you know, how do I contribute to my local soccer team <laughs> in an extraordinary way, thrilling and important and daunting for him? And that's just as good as how do I become the ambassador to Transylvania, you know, or whatever. Yeah, cool. That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. The other thing I found fascinating and really valuable in the book, actually, and I guess it's quite some people might think it's quite quite bold and brave in some ways. You constantly had your your two personal worthy goals in there that you was building up as you as you take readers through through the book. And because it's kind of my line of work, what this show's about, the piece around the second worthy goal stopping being the CEO of Box and Crowns was really interesting. So how's that going since you wrote the book? What's the what's the update? Just to talk about why those are in there, because in the, the previous books, The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap, I don't really appear as a character. You know, I'm trying to teach, but I'm actually trying to get out of the way 
because part of the, the very philosophy of coaching is to put the spotlight on the other person rather than yourself. So it felt weird if I'm like, look at me, notice me, I'm teaching you coaching. I'm like some cognitive dissonance there. But whereas in this book, it felt more useful if I show up as a character and as a kind of role model, as a facilitator and a teacher, one of my mantras is people respond to the strongest signal in the room. So if you're in front of a crowd, whether that crowd be 10,000 people or eight people or one person, they will respond to the embodiment that you have if you choose to be the strongest signal in the room. So if you want people to be generous and vulnerable and positive and curious or whatever your words are, if you show up like that, they will meet you there. They will respond to that. And so in a similar way, I wanted to do something in the book as well, where I'm like, let me show you the kind of the messiness and the self-doubt and the self-examination. And and let me try and show you what the process looks like. So you're like, oh, okay, I, this, I get what this is like. And even if you know the process in that you wrote the book, <laughs> you're still fumbling your way through it a little bit. So the two goals, are one is stopping being the CEO at Box of Crayons and one is having a podcast that has a certain degree of success. One of them's gone really well, which is stopping being the CEO at Box of, at Box of Crayons, which is the, the training company I founded. It's actually been two and a half years since I formally left that job. And Shannon and I worked really, Shannon's the new CEO. We, we, we hired a coach for two years to manage this process for us a year leading up to it and a year out of it oh wow because we we've done enough research to discover that founder transitions are a nightmare <laughs> because founders like me are a nightmare you know they're smart they're opinionated they have their fingers in all the pies the organization is is their dna they're desperate to give up 80% of it they're desperate to hold on to 20% of it and keep meddling so we really needed to find a way of setting boundaries and parameters that allowed me to give Shannon the best chance of succeeding as a CEO. And that's gone really well. She is a great CEO. The company has survived the whole pandemic and is thriving and is growing and is stronger than it's ever been. And it's also freeing for me because it turns out I was just not that good a CEO. <laughs> Shannon, you know, prior to her taking on the role, she's like, Michael, you got to tell me what you actually do as a CEO. And I'm like, Honestly, Shannon, I don't know. And the little bit I do know, I'm not entirely sure you should be doing as a CEO anyway. So you're going to have to find your own path on this one. The other, the other goal, which is to try and grow the podcast. So, you know, the goal started off at launching a podcast. One of the key lessons in the book is you need to keep drafting your worthy goal to make it tight and powerful for you. And the final draft was something like to be a top 3% podcast, meaning 10,000 listens per episode. I am well short of 10,000 <laughs> listens per episode. So that is still a, a worthy goal undergoing. I'm like working on going, how do I get more people to listen to my podcast? So if you're listening to this podcast, my podcast is called Two Pages with MBS. It's where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that's moved them and a book that shaped them. So we touch on leadership and change and big ideas and society and personal growth through the lens of favorite books that people come with. So it's really cool people reading really great stuff. And 
If there are 10,000 of you listening to Ben's podcast, feel free to drop Ben's podcast, which let's face it, has, <laughs> has hit an all-time low in having me as a guest. So you're like, it's, it's going downhill and it's going downhill fast. But come over to my podcast. It'll be amazing. <laughs> And despite that, we'll drop the link to your show in the in the show notes, folks, if you if you want to go and check it or out. Or we will just edit the section out of the podcast entirely. <laughs> no, we'll absolutely leave it in. Like it would be amazing um as two podcast hosts for me to ask you loads of questions about your podcast worthy goal, but that's not going to be that <laughs> no. interesting for, for the, the listeners. But the, the CEO one will, I'm sure. So did you did you and Shannon um I assume it was the same coach that you had and did you have kind of joint coaching sessions? I'm really intrigued by what that looked like. We hired this person as our transition coach. So it wasn't my coach cool. helping the transition or her coach helping the It's like Jill's only role was to get us both across the finish line. And so Jill was a champion for the outcome of a successful transition of power. So she wasn't in my corner or, or Shannon's corner in particular, it was like she was in our corner, in our goal, big goals corner. One of the key things that we did, um, this comes from a woman called Susan Scott who wrote a book called Fierce or Fierce Conversations. It's about communication. She has a decision-making tree, which is literally a tree. <laughs> That's the metaphor. She says, look, there are there are four elements that you can divide communication into twigs, branches, trunk, and root. So it's a useful way of understanding the hierarchy of what I need to know as the founder and as the owner, but as somebody who's no longer active in the business. Twig, I'll never know. <laughs> I just won't, won't ever hear about it. Branches, I will find out sometime after the event, maybe. Like literally yesterday, I was on LinkedIn and there was this thing going, congratulations, some, some woman show comes up going, I'm really excited. I've just joined Box of Crayons. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's cool. Somebody's been hired at Box of Crayons and I didn't even know they were hiring. So that's a, a branch thing. A trunk yeah. is something where Shannon and I will probably talk about it before the decision's made, but it's her decision yeah. to make. And so that would mean things like, you know, big investments of cash, but really big. I mean, you know, like six-figure or maybe even seven-figure investments, which, you know, kind of like, well, that's a lot of money, but it's still her decision. Or hiring onto the leadership team. So that more executive level at Box of Crowns, who she's hiring and what her plans are, we'd probably talk about that. Um, we talk about strategy, and that's all trunk decisions. So input from me, her decision. And then the roots are my decisions to make. And it turns out that I've I've got only two decisions that are mine to make. One is do we sell the company or not? And the other is, do I fire Shannon or not? That's it. Right. Yeah. And so that's both very freeing and liberating and sometimes quite annoying. But that parameter is something that we check in on all the time. So she'll, you know, ping me and go, I think this is a trunk decision. I'll ping her back going, I think it's a branch decision. So just, you don't need to get my feedback on this. And we're back and forth and in that model as a way of, maintaining boundaries and particularly just stopping me from from meddling yeah and do you use that language quite a lot oh that's yeah. a branch decision that's a trunk decision because i often find when you it's a bit like if you're unwell and you go to see see the doctor and he tells you what's wrong when something's got a name yeah. it makes it easier to deal with do you do you use that language and find yeah, we it do. yeah now part of what we figured out was what's the right cadence for us to talk 
And when she started, I'm like, because I have a history of kind of a bit of dump and run, you know, magical thinking. I'll just not tell you anything. I'll just dump it and disappear and, and have you expect that you somehow work miracles. I'm like, I, I won't do it. So I'm like, look, I'll just check in with you 10 minutes every day just to support you and encourage you. And anyway, that was a disaster. And she's like, ah, you know, you're getting involved in all the minutiae. And we then went to once a week. And even that was too much. So now we, we meet for lunch once a month and we have a formal board meeting once a quarter. So I don't get to talk to her that much about stuff, although she, you know, she'll text me or call me if something comes up. But formally, we've got a rhythm of once a month and once a quarter for our meetings. Got you. But for those monthly meetings in particular, we talk, we use branch and trunk and, and root a lot. And what were some of the unexpected challenges that, that cropped up in a transition? Was there anything that caught you off guard that you kind of weren't really expecting? I, I'm not sure these are unexpected, but the thing that we had to wrestle with was how do you replace Michael? Because even though I'd built a company around a brand, you know, Box of Crayons, not Michael Bungestania, um, you know, I'm still the author of the books that are the IP that fuel the company. And, you know, I do three things pretty well. I create IP, I design learning so people have a really good kind of ex learning experience and i kind of do marketing and sales ish we had to figure out you know what are we trying to replace <laughs> how do we replace it how do we shape that and it's taken us a bit of time to figure out how do you replace the michael shaped hole in the company but it leaves us in a stronger position because michael is not scalable but ip is scalable and, you know, Box of Crayons is, we're a company that has IP around being more coach-like and being curious. And our job is to sell that IP in different formats to yeah, different companies. And this next question is potentially one that I should be, maybe be better placed to, to ask Shannon, but it's quite a common situation, is it, where someone comes in as CEO to take over from, from the founder. What would your advice be to a CEO coming in to... to take the business on and forward after the kind of founders decided they want to step away? <laughs> I, I, well, I think understanding that the odds are against you, like statistically it's going to fail because founders come back and they screw it up. So there's that. Um, secondly, I think a conversation around, am I hiring you to run my company or am I hiring you to run your company? is really important because, you know, and both of those can be valid strategies. You can hire somebody to go, I've, I've created this thing. Your job is just to keep steering it. Or you're saying I've created this thing, but your job is to plan the next destination. And that's qu two quite different roles. And you want to be clear on that. I think that it's probably useful to have a conversation to say, how do we manage this? when things go off the rails yeah. because when you're hiring a CEO, everybody's so excited. <laughs> CEO is like, oh, I can't wait to give up this job. I'm tired and I'm bored and I'm, I've been in it too long. So I, I've got this vision of freedom <laughs> after this. The CEO is like going, this is amazing. This is a great company and I'm excited to step into it. And I like, feel me flexing my muscles and there's going to be conflict. And, um, I've seen too many companies actually fail because the transition has failed and it's brought the whole company down. 
So a conversation around going, how do we, how do we manage conflict is really helpful. And then if you're the founder, I'd say the other thing is to say, what's going to fill the void? <laughs> how will you set up something right. that will just give you something to be doing that's not looking over at the company you once ran and gone, maybe I could just pop in to, you know, make some suggestions, which is, you know, death. So I set up MBS.works immediately. That box of, I was moving away from box of crayons, not even knowing what it really was, but knowing that it was a structure to give me focus that wasn't me going, you know, I'll just give Shannon a call. You know, she probably wants to talk to me. It's like Shannon does not want to talk to me. <laughs> so MBS.works helps with that. Got you. Yeah. And that's probably quite a nice unplanned segue into the next question, actually. The other chapter of the book that really, or section of the book that really resonated with, with me was the crossing the threshold section. And it was the piece in there about, um, I think it was like some of the pitfalls. And you spoke about investing too much success in the experiment right. when you're sort of testing the, the worthy goals. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think that's something I've certainly fallen foul of in the past, I think. Yeah. You know, the book is called How to Begin because honestly my goal is to get people across the threshold and into the first steps of this journey because the journey itself is going to unfold in different ways for different people. You know, the goal might change or evolve or be different. Who knows what's going to happen? But if I can get you started, that feels like a, a helpful contribution. And I'm like, so what does it take to travel? Because if you're taking on this worthy goal, as I've said before, it's like non-trivial. <laughs> it's non-insignificant. It's not just a, okay, I'll just add it to my to-do list and tick it off when I'm done. It's like every day you're going, all right, how do I move this worthy goal forward? And the fact that it's daunting means that you probably know how to start, but you don't know how to finish. <laughs> you don't know what the middle bit looks like. You don't even know what the map looks like, really. In our fantasies, we think to ourselves, maybe, you know, once I've found my worthy goal and articulated it, I'll just, you know, type it into Google Maps and it'll go, here's, here's how you get here. <laughs> Three left-hand turns, four right-hand turns, 17 minutes, 19 minutes because of bad traffic, but you'll be fine. And actually, it's much more like you're standing on the edge of a jungle and there's a valley in front of you kind of covered in mist and there's a skull-shaped mountain over on the other side, which may or may not be your destination, and you can kind of see a little way into the jungle, but you're not totally sure. You don't type in your Google Maps and just kind of stride boldly forward into the jungle. You, you, you navigate. You navigate from milestone to milestone. And, you know, the key essence here is, like, you take small steps, but you keep moving. And then you're like, well, what sort of small steps? And... I really love the framing of the idea of, of experiments, which is like, you don't know what's going to work. So run experiments. Experiments are small, they're containable. Whether they work or whether they don't work, they're helpful because they give you data. We're launching a, a membership site at mbs.works. It's called The Conspiracy, and it's a, it's a place for people to work on stuff that matters. So they get the community and the connections and the resources to make progress. And we've just we've been beta testing it for a year or or more, and we've just been running a whole series of experiments, many of which haven't really worked. They haven't, but they haven't failed in such a way that the whole thing burns to the ground. But they're like, oh, that's interesting. That didn't really work, and five percent of the people left. Okay, so mm. what does that tell us? <laughs> what do we need? What do we do or not do next time to try and make this work? So 
the acknowledgement for this is from the work of Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy, who wrote a book called Immunity to Change, where they talk about some of the, why do we get stuck on some of the intractable hard stuff? And, you know, one of their insights is, you know, run experiments rather than undergo a journey. And you'll still make progress, but it'll be safer. Yeah. And I really like this experiment and analogy. And I think it's also interesting, or I think sometimes you need to be careful around sort of defying or classifying an experiment as, as failed, because actually sometimes the learnings from the experiment or the data from the experiment might be of use to you years down the line. Like, I'm, right. I mean, I've certainly got examples of that years ago, trying to create my first online course at the time, I could quite easily have classified it as an utter disaster. Right. Fast forward three or four years, actually, there's so much from that that I learned that then helped me kind of grow and grow in this podcast. So you never know where the learning or data from one of those experiments is going to be helpful, do you? Right. I mean, the thing you're doing as an experiment can fail and the experiment can be a success. <laughs> and it's disentangling that, which is like, you know what? I've set up an experiment that if it doesn't work, it's not going to cripple me. And if it doesn't work, I can really stop and have the discipline to go. So what does that tell me? What do I learn from that? If you if you decide to take it too personally, if you bet too big, then there's more yeah. at risk. Yeah, love it. Um, Michael, probably final question, thinking about the time we have. Um, the other concept from the book that I'd, I'd love you to just expand on, if if you will, was the the famous five concept. Yeah. So not everybody's going to get that reference, but if you're old enough and you've got British heritage, and I grew up in Australia, but my dad was British, you might know Enid Blyton, one of the great children's authors. And she had a series of books called The Famous Five. You had, uh, what is it, Julian, Dick and Anne, George, who's Georgina, she's the tomboy, very radical, and Timmy the dog, and they go off and have adventures and, you know, uncover smugglers and people breaking into houses and it's all, all rippingly good fun. And the girls spend a lot of time preparing ginger beer and cookies for the boys who are out having the real adventures, but, you know, gender stereotypes and the like. We've come a long way. But yeah, the key insight around this is to say, look, worthy goals big. Don't try and do it alone. Find your people. And there's two things to, as I call it, building the band – First of all, you've got to figure out who doesn't come with you. And there are some people who are not going to be great supports as you think about doing a worthy goal. So you want to be going, how do I put sideline them, <laughs> you know, leave them behind or just say, I just need to contain you so that you don't contaminate what I'm trying to do here. But then there's a, another question is like, so who do you bring in? You know, what energies do you bring into the circle? And I found this particularly helpful because I'm kind of a bit wired to do it all myself. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know, I'm a rugged individualist and I've read too many versions of the hero's journey. I'm like, no, just stride out across the desert sands with a blazing sword in your hand and you can be the hero of your own dreams. And I'm like, that it's it's never like that. <laughs> it's always it's always with people. So I draw on First Nations and Indigenous and peoples of North America, and they have a ritual which I've seen a number of times called calling in the directions. And they often do it at the start of a gathering. And it's a way of bringing in the very best of what's needed into the circle. What I like about it is that you can think about it as both bringing these energies into you 
how do you build this capacity within yourself? Right, yeah. But you can also think about it as an externally. It's like, who do I need around me who brings this energy if I may not have all I need? And so the, the four energies, as I understand them, are, are, you know, the kind of the warrior energy, you know, a fierceness, a boldness, a drawing the line, <laughs> uh, holding the, the castle, vanquishing enemies, not accepting any BS, kind of that fierceness, if you like. The second of the energies is the healer or the lover. So that's almost the, the opposite of the, the warrior. It's more, it's more about nurturing and recovery and rest and healing and compassion and generosity and vulnerability. The third of the energies is the, the teacher or sometimes the magician. And it's like, what, what knowledge do I need that I don't know? You know, whose feet do I sit at? Where do I go to? have a mentor and a coach and a guide and a role model and a, somebody who can say, this is the wisdom you've been looking for that you don't yet have. And the fourth of the energies is the ruler or the visionary. And for me, that's about strategy and keeping around the horizon and a degree of ruthlessness about what choices you make and deciding which of those four energies to bring in and are useful to gather around you. And, you know, one person can have one, two, three of those different energies. It's not four separate people. And then the fifth one was the trickster, who kind of is outside that model of the four energies. But the trickster is the troublemaker, you know, the shit stirrer, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the distractor. The trickster tends to show up on, on the journey. And it's just useful to go, this person is actually just part of the gang, and part of the journey. Their job is to try and distract me so I can get clear on what really matters their job is to teach me stuff and to see them not as somebody who is um, necessarily trying to undermine you although the trickster can be doing that but to go the trickster is playing a certain role that helps me make progress on this journey mm. so is the trickster almost the devil's advocate well it, it can be the devil's advocate although the devil's advocate kind of goes let me be the devil's advocate and just offers an alternative point of view but you're like I know you're playing a role. Got you. The trickster is actually the person who goes, Ben, mate, come on. I think you should drop the podcast and come down to the pub for a beer. Because obviously the podcast isn't that good, is it? So why don't you <laughs> just kind of do something a little easier, you know, and stop trying to build an audience this way. It's a slow way of doing it. Look, there are so many leadership podcasts. Why would you even be doing this? You're kind of wasting your time. You're wasting, you're wasting everybody's time a little bit. But you're still a good bloke. <laughs> Come and do this instead. Yeah. And that's one version of the whisper, uh, the the trickster, I should say, kind of whispering away. Got you. So, so the the first four are the the people that kind of you want to actively select and bring into your your gang. Although you might not have all four, you might have two of a certain exactly. role, et cetera, et cetera. But the trickster is identifying the people who are going to be with you anyway that could derail you and you just need to be sort of forewarned. Yeah. The tricks is the tricks is trying to whisper you off the path. Yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. Very, very cool. Michael, it's been awesome chatting to you and uh, it's been, it's been really cool to be able to ask the author a, a few more questions about, about the book from the things that really resonated uh, with me. I appreciate um, it. Thank you. If people want to grab a copy, connect with you, find out more, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Look, if you want more about the book, you can find it most places books are being sold. Um, howtobegin.com is where you can find additional videos and resources and downloads and the like. And if you want a bit more about just me, then mbs.works is my website. Um, so that gives you access to 
all sorts of additional free resources. So mbs.works. Cool. And your podcast? Uh, yeah, thank you. Two pages with MBS, available anywhere podcasts are listened to. Cool. Awesome. Michael, thanks very much. been awesome chatting to you. Uh, have, a, have a great day. Thanks, Ben. There you have it, folks. That was my conversation, my interview with Michael Bungay-Stania. I hope you got loads of value from it. And as always, I really hope there is just one golden nugget that you can take away and immediately do something with. Quick reminder, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get in your podcasts. And do also check out my free leadership mini course, the 10 for 10 course which is 10 short emails over 10 weeks focusing on some of the most common leadership challenges and topics that people ask me about. It's totally free and the link for that is in the show notes or you can find it via my website at www.ben-morton.com. That's it for this episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Look after yourselves. I'll see you in the next one and lead on. Thank you.